Welcome to the Runner's World Show. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World and host of this podcast. Each week, we inspire, entertain, and inform you about all things running with interviews and great stories and tips and advice about how to improve your own running life, and with a buzzy roundup of the week's running news called The Kick. This week in The Kick, we'll discuss a remarkable first and a last place finish in the recently concluded Olympic track and field trials. Then we'll bring you more of the stories we collected at the Boston Marathon in April when we set up a mobile recording studio at our expo booth and invited anybody to come by and share their own stories in their own words. We got lots of great stuff about runners finding connection and encouragement and motivation to run their best. I mean, look at me. I I, I look terrible. To have somebody say, no, you're doing something that's truly spectacular. You're out here and, and I really appreciate it really changed my uh, my whole point of view and and this is the healthiest buildup I've had uh, for a marathon and at least in the last four or five that I've done but first a conversation we had with marathoner Dina Castor she talks about the highs and lows of competing at the very top of the sport including Olympic glory and an epic Olympic disappointment I got on the the bus to ride back to the Bird's Nest Stadium, which is not how I visualized it a hundred times before, Um, but got on that bus and I immediately started crying into the towel thinking, why me? And then I snorted like, oh my God, why me? Really? Why don't I just ask why? Dina also talks about the challenges of living a balanced running life, which is something all of us probably struggle with. Thanks for joining us. Dina Castor is one of the most decorated American distance runners of all time. She's a three-time Olympian, and at 43, she still holds the American record in the marathon, a 2.19.36 she ran in London in 2006. And recently, she broke the Masters world record in the half marathon, one hour, seven minutes, and 34 seconds, a race she ran at the 2014 Philadelphia Rock and Roll Half Marathon. Dina is also a mom, a foodie, a wine lover, and she's, not surprisingly, a lot of fun to hang out with. For all these reasons, we recently asked her to co-host our first-ever Runner's World Getaway Weekend at the Weston Hilton Head Resort, a weekend of seminars, workouts, runs, and great food. Dina got on stage to speak to the crowd of nearly 90 women a couple of times. We aired her talk about the power of positivity in Episode 7 of the show. Today, we've got the Q&A Dina did with executive editor Tish Hamilton. They talked about the Olympics, but they also talked about lots of topics that are relevant to runners of all levels. Running as a new mom, running as you get a little bit older, and how to balance work, family, and training into a running life that is sustainable and fulfilling. So I'm here to talk to Dina today, Dina Castor. So Dina is writing a book, and she, we were just talking about it, and... Um, you're starting with something that I want to ask you about first, which is, you know, running, of course, is full of highs and lows. You have so many highs in your career, um, but one of the ones that that really stands out and and is so exciting um, to this day is the 2004 Olympics in Athens, Greece, where at one point, I'm pretty sure you were in 18th place, Uh, and, and, you know, of course, I've 
never got an Olympic medal, but you know, everybody knows that feeling, right, of picking people off when you like, you had that excitement of like, oh, another person, another person, and you get chills just thinking about it. So I wanted to ask you, Dina, like, what do you remember from that day? Wow. Um, I've had to reflect on it a lot because I'm writing about it right now, but uh, going into that summer preparing for the Olympic Games um, was only possible because I got beat at the Olympic trials. And I went into the Olympic trials thinking, I've got a five-minute personal best over everyone. I'm just going to breeze through and make this team, and then I can move on to, to training for the, for the Games. And what a rude awakening that was to, to struggle. I not only disrespected my competitors by thinking I could out, outbeat them, but also disrespected the distance in general. So I struggled through that last 10K and got second place and was looking over my shoulder to make sure third and fourth weren't right there and ready to challenge me because I'm not sure I had what it, what it took to, to, to sprint to the finish. And I felt very lucky that day to have made the team off of such a cocky and disrespectful um, attitude going into it. And because of that, it really made me reflect and be analytical about where I went wrong and how I can improve that. So I was on a mission that summer to do everything just perfectly to prepare for those games. I wanted to be um, prepared for the heat. I wanted to be prepared for the hills. I wanted to be prepared to meet 87 of the best marathoners in the entire world. And, um, and running with that purpose every day, it gave me purpose in how I ate, how I defined sleeping and committed myself to, to sleeping well. Um, it made me dig down when I wanted to give up at the end of a 20-mile run. And so when I was on the hills of Athens and um, stepped out of the bus in 101-degree temperatures and thought, I, I was heat-trained, but I'm not sure I trained for triple digits um, but just going in with that confidence of knowing I did everything I, I could and just needed to let that race play out because of the extreme heat, my conservative race got even more conservative. And so it was difficult to, at the, the height of, of fitness and at the height of, um, of, a, of a season, to allow the best in the world to run away from you. But I had to do that for the sake of not, um, not overheating. I knew in those temperatures that overheating was inevitable. I just wanted to be the last one to do it. So I, um, I set out a very conservative pace. I didn't look at my watch. I just wanted it to feel really, really easy. And, um, and then um, it was probably at the 10K where I was watching the leaders pull further and further away that I said, you know, I, I don't actually, in all this obsessing about the heat, I don't feel hot. And I shifted my mindset to thinking about how hot it was to thinking about how I would stay cool while I increased my pace. So I focused on dabbing sponges on my wrists and on top of my head, but not too much because I didn't want to get my shoes wet because then you'd get blisters. So all these little things, these... Um, these, um, these ideas we spin in our head, but it was this gradual increase in pace, and then that momentum of, I hate to say that the Moroccan girl in front of me, when she pulled off to the side of the road to puke, I thought, that's really sad, but oh God, this is awesome. <laughs> Got one. And then to start seeing two of the best Ethiopian uh, marathoners from that, from, um, from that country stagger down the road together. And at one point, it almost looked like they were helping hold each other up. And I thought, good, two more. Got two at the same time. And that, that momentum. And so I don't know if I was actually increasing the pace or people were actually just struggling in front of me. But whatever the case, I put my mind. And it was... 
It was a practice in everything that I do to believe that I can do it in a moment where I wanted to meddle and didn't see any leaders ahead of me to reflect for a second, like, I'm not sure I have it in me, but I, I'm going to do what I've trained myself to do and believe that I can still do this. And so just kept picking off runners one at a time. And so in very clear English, I heard someone say, you're in 18th place. Um, and then the, the next time I heard, I heard a lot of Greek in the next couple of miles, but I was still passing people. And then I heard 12th place. And so I said, oh, I'm going to start counting. I, I can count from 12 down. That's, that's easy. Even with as bad as my math is, Anyway, and then at a marathon on top of that, um, I was still able to count down from 12. So I got to 11 and 10 and 9. And by the time I I passed, I didn't know that Paula Radcliffe, the world record holder at the time, had dropped out of the race. But I saw with my math, I didn't know who was in front of me, but saw this silhouette in front of me and the lights of the Panthenaco Stadium, the ancient stadium. And it ended up being um, Elfnes Shilemu. And... uh, I saw her legs kind of buckle and thought, oh, man, I'm going to close this gap. And I reeled her in, and I was surprised at how quickly I reeled her in. But I held my breath so that I didn't sound like I was heaving, and I made my form look really good so that when I blew by her, I, I like, blew all of her motivation and any chance she thought at, at recatching me. And blew by her and thought, oh my god, I'm in third place, until I heard a voice to the sides in very clear English say, way to go, girl, you're now in fourth. And I was like, and I looked up ahead and saw Catherine Dereba, who has tight arm carriage, very recognizable, and I thought, did I miscalculate? Oh, I knew I was terrible at math. And so I I just decided I was going to run my heart out until I got into the stadium and hear what people had to say. And I was listening, like, is anyone else going to tell me what place I'm in? But I didn't hear any more English. And I got into the stadium, and I heard Dina Castor and something in Greek. And I thought, oh, God, I can't even decipher what that meant. And then Dina Castor and something in French. And I was like, please make this next, this next language be Spanish or English so I know what's going on. And then it was a man that came on in very clear English that said, Dina Castor is going to capture the bronze, which is why I couldn't understand one, two, or three, is going to capture bronze. And, um, and that's when I erupted in, in tears and uh, tears of joy because, to me, that moment just connected me to so many people that had to do with it, that a lot of times we look like we're alone out there, but we need that support system. I had... Um, my coach and my husband and, uh, and my parents and extended family in the stadium. And I even remember circling that track with all the eruption and roars going on, only hearing my mother, woohoo, woohoo. And she just kept doing that. I thought, oh my God, that's so embarrassing. Um, so it's better than do you need toilet paper, which she's done before in a, at a track meet. So, um, so it was just a very emotional moment um, coming into that stadium and realizing that my team had done it. it was, they had gotten me to that start line, but it was my job to execute come, come race time, and I was very, very proud and grateful to have had the opportunity to do it. That was a long-winded answer. That's a great one. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> All right, so that, that's a real high. That's a really cool high. Um, and so I'm sorry to have to do this, but, but now we also have to talk about lows. Yeah. Um, because with every high, there's also lows, and, you know, they, they contrast each other. So 2008, you win the trials that year and uh, go to Beijing, and um, now you're going in with a different set of expectations. And um, those Olympics uh, didn't go as well. 
So tell us about, tell us that story. Not only did they not go well, they didn't go as planned at all. Similar to my childbirth. I mean, I had this great natural birth plan and had just extreme um, education and being flexible and rolling with, um, rolling with things. But I went into the Beijing Olympics and being the person of never-ending improvement that I, that I set out to, to be, um, was looking for a gold medal and felt like I had, had built myself up into an athlete that summer to be able to do that. And at mile three of the 26.2-mile race, my foot got tight in one stride. And the very next step, my third metatarsal split in half. And not a stress fracture. That's typical of distance running. But it actually splintered and feathered um, um, right in the center of my foot. And so I got up to try. It brought me to the ground. And I got up to try to, to, try to run and realized I, I couldn't. And it, it would be another two months before I was even able to put my foot on the ground again. But I got on the, on the, um, the bus to ride back to the Bird's Nest Stadium, which is not how I visualized it 100 times before. Um, but got on that bus, and I immediately started crying into the towel, thinking, why me? And then I snorted, like, oh, my God, why me? Really? Why don't I just ask why? Like, really, the question is why. Why did this happen? Not why me. I'm not a victim here. This happened for a reason. I'm going to find it out. And it was so immediate, but it was only immediate because I practiced that so many times and um, practiced asking those analytical questions. And so my pity party lasted only like 30 seconds. It was pretty good. And on that bus ride, I just devoted um, to to being laid up with probably crutches and a boot that I was anticipating and to use that time to figure out why at the time in my life where I thought I was my fittest, I was actually at my most unhealthy. And so that was a very big differentiation to me, being fit and healthy were not um, necessarily synonymous. And so I went to the Olympic Village and x-ray showed that my, my bone was splintered and feathered, but the miracle of our amazing bodies is the fact that all that swelling, the fact that my foot was so swollen, it, felt like, it looked like a football and felt like the skin was ready to rupture at any second, um, all that pressure and swelling actually reset my bone. So my doctor back home, when they faxed him the, um, the results of my x-ray, said, don't you dare even let a bed sheet touch that toe, or we're going to have to put a rod through it. And everybody was at a distance. Like, that's too close. Like, get, stay, everybody stay away from me. And I was able to, over the weeks, do some research. I went home from Beijing, which wasn't easy to travel like that, but went home and I got a DEXA scan. And at the age of 30-something, it showed that I was osteoporosis and got a blood test. And the, this was before this whole craze of vitamin D. And my brilliant doctor figured out that um, in my blood test that I had zero vitamin D in my blood. And that is a whole chain of events that happened of getting... Giardia in the summer, I got totally depleted once I figured out it was Giardia and got put on the antifungal medications. I had lost some weight, and because I was training, it, it um, 
took my body leached minerals from my bones to be able to produce the energy expenditure that I was demanding of it. And by the time all of this rolled around, I also had skin cancer issues, so I don't let the sun touch me, which is why I was lacking so much vitamin D. And because of that, I um, had no vitamin D to reabsorb calcium back into my bones. So weird. But my doctor figured this out. Like, what a brilliant guy to just sit there and and help me try to get through this because I kept asking, why, why, why? (laughs) And, um, And in six months, through nutrition only, no supplementation, just nutritionally, I got in. In, um, all the vitamin D I needed to get my bones back to being healthy and strong and, uh, and to come back training hard again. And I felt, as my mom called me, I had my crutches on and my backpack, and I made myself a little sandwich in the kitchen and put, the, put my water bottle and my sandwich in my backpack, and I crutched outside to where the views are beautiful, and I sat down to eat my lunch, but then I crutched back in to grab a book and crutched back out, and then the phone rang. And I crutched in, and I grabbed the phone. Hi, Mom. Hold on a second. And I put the phone in my backpack, and I crutched outside so I can talk to her with a nice view. And she said, oh, gosh, I'm just calling to see if you're okay. I said, Mom, I'm just as okay as two hours ago when you called me. Yes, I'm fine. And she said, but I just worry. This is the first time you've ever, like, not been able to run. I know you take time off and all that, but this is the first time it's been, like, taken away from you. And I said, Mom, I'm okay. And when I hung up from her... I hope she believed me. I was questioning, like, why am I okay with this? I just broke my foot in the Olympic Games. I'm, I'm on the mend still, can't put my foot down. And, um, and I realized that running in this practice of positivity that I've been practicing for years, so it's ingrained in me, it's a part of me, um, that I can claim being positive or optimistic, that the practice of it, here I thought I was a passionate runner, that running was my passion, and I'm without it, and I'm okay, and I realized that all of this practice had just made me passionate, and so I deserve to sit here, even though my identity as a runner is being taken away from me, I deserve to sit here and have a delicious lunch with a view of the mountains, and so it's treating yourself worthy and finding out reasons for for illness or for Um, negativity and replacing that with things that serve us better and feeling like we deserve better. So you mentioned um, uh, you had a plan for your childbirth. Uh, I know you had Piper in um, 2011, and I'm curious if, did you run through pregnancy? I had every plan to. Um, I uh, I was training for the New York Marathon. Thought I was thought I was ready to to win the New York City Marathon. Put myself in that position, and all of a sudden, one day, I'm doing mile repeats in the park, and I am a minute off my time. I get to the 800 meters and look at my watch, and I'm like, "How did that happen?" And I put in a surge to try to finish stronger, and still like no um, no results. So I tried one more mile repeat, and then halfway through it, I got in the car and drove home and um, realized I was two days late on my period, and I thought, well, I'm always regular. Every 21 days, uh, regretfully, very, very regular. And so I did a little home pregnancy test, and I'm sitting next to my husband, who's just watching the computer, so maybe some, some track meet or something on the computer, and a positive shows up, and then a, a test with the doctor confirmed it, and immediately went into, okay, if this goal isn't going to happen of, of winning the marathon, then I'm going to have a goal of, of being a gold medal mom and, and producing a healthy child. So I went into nurture mode and thought for the health of me and the health of the child, I'm going to run for an hour or a half hour to 45 minutes every day. And about four days of doing that, I was so exhausted. All I wanted to do is nap every day. 
And once that wore off, I had these horrible side stitches, so I couldn't even walk the dog anymore. I remember my husband driving by when I was probably three houses away sitting on the curb, and he came by and he said, are you okay? I said, I can't walk anymore. So I slowly walked, I was just taking a rest, walked back to the house, and he took over dog walking duties, and um, and I had an impeccably clean house. I stayed at home all day, I cleaned, I baked fresh cookies. I was like the quintessential version of the housewife being barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. And, um, and to me, that was, that was my goal. And then um, I didn't run until two weeks after my pregnancy when the banshee was born and she was screaming and crying all the time. And my husband would walk a hundred flights of stairs to lull her to sleep and I wasn't going to do that. So I got on the treadmill and walked with this exaggerated bounce. And one night um, at like 10 o'clock at night, she fell asleep that way, and I passed her off to Andrew and turned up the speed on the treadmill and just did a maybe 10 minutes. I probably ran a quarter mile in, in 10 minutes, but it felt so good. My body was tingly, and I got a little itchy on my skin. I could feel things moving inside, and it felt so good. And I can't believe that just that 10 minutes of running could feel so intoxicating and joyful and um, I wasn't sure if I would return to running competitively, but in that moment, I realized how much it is a part of me, and um, it was a, another um, fall-in-love-with-running experience. So she's five now, um, but, you know, uh, having a child in the picture changes everything, um, and especially those early years, you know, from the infant and all those stages you go through, and she's just five. Um, so uh, tell us how that has changed your priorities. Yeah, it is. It's changed a lot. And kids teach us here. I thought being a parent that I had to teach a lot and I'm being taught a tremendous amount in in the pursuit of it. I remember um, a few months after having Piper feeling like I had time to make that my the next Olympic team, make my fourth Olympic team. And I um, really tried to get ready for it. I ended up in sixth place in in that race. And I remember that feeling of um, falling short as an athlete and also falling short as a mother because for the first time in my life I couldn't give 100% of my attention to running but I also felt like I was cheating my daughter out of out of the attention that she needed so it was a really hard hard moment I remember being um uh, camping on the coast of Cambria near Hearst Castle and just coming back from seeing the seals on in San Simeon and coming to this realization that I needed to set priorities and uh, that I was no longer the priority, but I needed to, to set some. And so I thought that health and family come first and running in my job come, come second. And although, um, although there's sometimes not a clear line because going out for a run makes me a better mommy also. <laughs> so there's not always a, a defined line in making those choices, but it definitely gave me the parameters to be able to make those choices with. So it, it really set a good tone to be able to, um, to balance everything from there on. Um, in 2013, you turned 40. And, and I'm curious about when the prospect of, of master's records started to get exciting for you. Ooh, uh, I never thought I would be running at a at a high level um, after forty and retired, but maybe going for a run a few days a week. When I was running at the prime of my career, I thought winning was what would fuel me, and it took me a while to realize that it's that moment of um, 
of the crux of the problem, of, of trying to, to get over that hurdle, to shift a perspective, to work our way around it. And to me, that is so empowering. And, and I know that it's not just about running because I'm only learning those things so I can apply them in life, but running is the vehicle for me for learning those things. So I also had to remind myself that in Chicago this past year, getting to that point in the race where it hurt so badly, and I knew that I was slipping off pace until I saw that I wasn't. But when I felt like I was slipping off pace, I said, isn't this what I do this for? This is, this is why I'm here. This is the point that I love. And then I'm like, no, I don't love this, like that inner battle. Like, I don't really love this. I'm like, no, you do love this. This is why you're not retired. This is why you're out here chasing this record, because it wasn't really the, the record that... Um, it wasn't the record that was the pursuit. It was knowing that if I put a goal out there that's high enough and slightly unreachable, that's when I'm going to put in the work and, and do those little things that make it possible. So that, that was Chicago Marathon this past fall, and you set the um, U.S. Masters record. So that's an, a great segue to my next question, which is, you know, we're, we're a room full of women with jobs and families and busy lives and, and trying to fit running into the puzzle and trying to fit yoga into the puzzle. Um, so, you know, how, how do you tell all of us <laughs> to, um, to stay motivated to run? Yeah, life is crazy. This is all about us and how we can, how we can be better at whatever it is we want to do. And um, like I said, running is that gateway to be able to do that. It's our time where we can reflect and do our mental to-do lists. And, um, and uh, there, are, there are times of being overwhelmed where you just, you're on the verge of crying because there's so much to get done and so little time to do it. And these are, these are real moments in our lives where we feel like it's falling apart. But that's our opportunity to piece it back together on our own terms. And I really feel that in those moments um, where I feel overwhelmed and overworked and uh, that I, I stop myself and I reflect on my to-do list and look at all the things that I have to do and is anything um, dispensable here? Do I need to obligate myself to these things? And more often than not, I say, yeah, I, I do like this. I, I like this role. I like what I'm doing. And so it immediately shifts my attention to feeling like overwhelmed and exasperated to feeling grateful for the opportunity to have these roles in my life, to be a mom, to be a wife, to be a president of a track club, to inspire the running community in Mammoth Lakes where I live, and to be able to travel for my sponsor and travel for friends. And, um, and those are wonderful opportunities to be able to connect with a community that I absolutely adore. So um, I feel like running is so relatable that with a, despite our differences, um, our different backgrounds and our different motivations and ability levels, we all know what we're going through and, and what's going on. And I think sometimes we need to, in a period of being overwhelmed, just pause and reflect on what our responsibilities are and either get rid of some of them or be grateful for them. And more often than not, I'm grateful for it. Right, because even, even when it's really hard, it's still such a privilege. I just want to thank you very much, Dina. That was really fun. Thank you, Tish. Thank you. That was Dina Castor talking with Runner's World Executive Editor Tish Hamilton at the Runner's World Getaway at the Weston Hilton Head Island Resort and Spa. To hear Dina's talk on the power of positive thinking, check out Episode 7 of the Runner's World Show or go to runnersworld.com slash audio.
Some of you might remember that we brought a mobile recording booth to the Boston Marathon Expo in April. We wanted to hear from runners, from you, to hear your stories of inspiration, struggle, and achievement. We've got a few of those stories for you today. Enjoy. Hi, my name is Brittany Carbone. And, man, I kind of get emotional when I talk about this. Um, My grandfather is definitely the person who inspired me to begin running when I was younger. Um, He has since passed, but when I was a little girl, we played soccer together, and he would always tell me to do sprints, and he would bring me out on the weekends, and we'd run around the soccer field, and um, he really got me into running. And um, his whole life, up until he passed away, he ran every single day, and he swam every single day, and he boxed every single day. And seeing the way that he lived his life and the vigor in which he approached each day inspired me to basically keep running and to really connect with the sport and take care of myself and practice self-love and self-care no matter what because that's what he did. And and he passed away just by chance at 86, and uh, he was so healthy and and lived such a vibrant life up until he passed. And so I want to live my life that way, and he has inspired me to do so. My name is Jack Mullaney, and I'm from Logan, Utah. Uh, I got into running about five or six years ago, and um, initially ran my first marathon four years ago, and uh, ultimately my my dream and and my long-term goal is to be here, um, to run the Boston Marathon. And um, as many people know, uh, there is a qualifying standard to get here, and so for me, that was 305, and that was something that I had to achieve. Um, when I first started running, um, I, I definitely wasn't at that at that speed yet, and so I was um, trying to find anything, whether it be in my training or, or anything that I could do to, to get down to that you know elusive 305. And um, the solution that I thought was uh, diet and nutrition, and unfortunately that took a turn for the worse, and I ended up um, developing an eating disorder. Getting into it, I thought it would make me a better runner, and in fact, it made me worse. Um, that was up until about a year ago when I discovered November Project. Um, so I was living in Minneapolis at the time, and um, had found a, a local running store where a few people were part of November Project, and uh, I, got, I just kind of got intrigued, and so I decided to show up for the first time, and never have I been around a group of people that is so encouraging, so motivating, and so judgment-free. Honestly, I mean, when I was going through the rough patch that I was going through, uh, it was really hard for me to to even start my stopwatch, so to speak, because I knew that by the time I was done with my run, I'd be disappointed. And um, going to November Project really uh, made me find my confidence again. Um, no matter how fast or how slow I did the workout, there was always somebody encouraging me, always pushing me and treating me like I was, I was Superman. There was a morning, uh, one of those great Midwest uh, January mornings where it was about 35 below wind chill, and uh, we're all out there. It's totally cold out. I'm barely moving, and um, just right in a row having five people run by me and, and yell, yeah, Jack, yeah, we're out here, yeah, we're doing this, let's go. And to have somebody say that in, in a moment when when I felt like, I mean, l- look at me, I, I, I look terrible. To have somebody say, no, you're doing something that's truly spectacular, you're out here, and, and I really appreciate it. Um, 
really changed my uh, my whole point of view. And and this is the healthiest buildup I've had uh, for a marathon. And uh, well, geez, uh, at least in the last four or five that I've done. And uh, I feel like I have a lot more control over my over my body again. And it's it's always good to have people like the November Project to continue to you know promote that uh, that positive energy and and continue to pump me up. I'm Rachel Palmer. I'm from Michigan. I'm Becky Davis, and I'm from Texas. You start. So uh, we are here at the Boston Marathon Expo together. I am running tomorrow, and Rachel is here to... I'm the support crew. Yes, support crew. (laughs) And here's the crazy thing. About three years ago for Chicago Marathon 2013, we met via... Instagram. Yes, that whole hashtag thing. Yeah. Hashtag Chicago Marathon is really clever. (laughs) Very clever. And so we met up at the expo. No, we didn't even meet at the expo. I came in the day later. We met the morning of the race. We did in one girl's hotel room. And took pictures and hung out, saw each other after the race. And live, I mean, miles and miles apart. We have kept in touch for the last three years. Um, this is actually the first time we've seen each other since that race. Yes. Been in contact and through text and Instagram. Phone calls support. in the middle yeah. of runs when we think we're going to die. Yes. We call the other one and they talk us down from the hill. Yeah, yeah it's true. <laughs> Remember, I had to do an afternoon run and I hate afternoon runs. Yeah, I had to talk And to I wanted to quit. And so <laughs> she made me continue. She wouldn't let me quit. Yeah. And I had to check in afterwards. Yes, I did. You did. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again to all of you who sat with us in the booth in Boston. And if you talk to us but haven't heard your story yet, keep an ear out. And now it's time for The Kick with editor Brian Dalek and reporter Kit Fox. Okay, Kit Fox, you're fresh off a red-eye flight from Eugene back here to Pennsylvania this morning. You were at the Olympic trials for 10 days. We recapped the first four days last week on The Kick. Let's just start talking about the final four days out in Eugene. Yeah, it was even more dramatic, (laughs) I would say. There was a lot that happened in the final four days. Great for track fans, Mm -hmm. actually. Um, One of my personal favorite stories has to be Bernard Bagot. We'd be remiss if we didn't mention the 41-year-old who came back in kind of a crazy race Mm -hmm. where— And and keep in mind, he was— he dropped out of the 10,000 the weekend before. So Yeah, he's had some health issues um, in the past, been injured a fair amount. And, you know, as you age and are a master's runner, things don't heal as quickly. But he, during this race, his splits are insane. It, they, you know, the field started out really slow, um, and they, they continued to pick it up. In fact, a couple runners decided that it was too slow, and about three mm-hmm. laps in, took off. And then the pack caught the leaders, and the last lap pretty much out of nowhere mm-hmm. Bernard Lagat drops a 52 second 400 right which in comparison to the rest of the race is just nuts it's unfathomable like it's crazy at his age to be able to do that i saw a tweet that it was probably the closest anyone has ever come to running their age on a track <laughs> but yeah his story is so great and that he was just so happy at the end of the race just um just thrilled to be going back to his fifth olympics 
Right. But he's not the only person who's making a return to the Olympics after the trials in Eugene. Yeah, there's going to be a, a couple familiar faces out there, starting with Matt Centrowitz, who just put in a dominating performance mm-hmm. in the 1500. Um, looked almost like... I don't want to say he jogged it, but he definitely <laughs> led it the whole way and dropped a, a 334. So It's amazing when you can run that fast and it looks like a jog to like the television viewer like uh, myself watching back here. It's crazy. And just to see it live, you kind of don't understand how fast they're running until you see it live. Mm-hmm. So Centro is going to be back. He took fourth place in the 1500 in 2012. So he's gotten even better. We expect some pretty big things from him. But in addition to him, um, the U.S. is sending a pretty strong steeplechase field in the likes of Evan Jaeger and Emma Coburn, who both, to keep a theme here, look like they jogged through their, their finals, won it in a pretty dominant fashion. Yeah, and moving on from people returning to the Olympic Games, a, a ton of new runners are going to Rio and the Olympics for the first time. Yeah, this is really exciting, um, especially for U.S. track and field. We actually have 77 first-time Olympians. 77. Going to Rio. (laughs) Yeah. And um, so that's more than half of the field are newcomers. And there's a couple that I just want to mention. One, she's actually the youngest American track and field athlete since the 70s, Sydney McLaughlin, who is 16 years old. And you spoke with her after her race. I did. She was just so excited. I mean, this is, she's returning for her senior year of high school. Like, her summer break is ending at the Olympic Games in Rio de, <laughs> Rio de Janeiro. Yeah. So it wasn't necessarily, like, a big surprise because she's so talented mm-hmm. and has, you know, she that night um, actually broke the world junior record, which is a 10-year-old record. She ran a 54.15 in the 400-meter hurdles. Mm -hmm. So besides her, what other newcomers are we really going to be trying to watch out for in Rio? One of the best stories of the week, a story of redemption, is Brenda Martinez. Mm -hmm. And she specializes in the 800 meters. Yeah, we talked about her last week on the kick and how, you know, she got kicked out to the side and she lost her chance in the 800. Exactly. So she ended up signing up for the 1500, kind of like a last gasp, I need to make the Olympics. And in that race uh, down the home stretch, she she was in third place, but Amanda Eccleston, um, a young Brooks athlete, you could see her surging. Maybe if there was five more meters in the race, she would have caught Brenda. But Brenda right. was able to fend her off and both diving across the line. And it's it's great to watch Brenda's reaction because we think that she didn't know right away that she, <laughs> yeah. she lost out on it. So she's kind of on the track, completely gassed. And when she finds out, she just gets really emotional. And a couple of the other American runners, you know, came to congratulate her. There's always that good scene in a photo finish like that where everyone's looking up at the board, just waiting for those official times. You can oh. see that a lot. Yeah, I don't even think she had the energy to do that. I mean, she was just like, on the track in the fetal position. (laughs) She had given it everything she had, and she made the Olympics. So, you know, we talked a lot about, you know, people who've won and are going to the Olympics, but one of the best stories we posted last week was Bayou, a a great story. You talked to the guy who came in last in the 10K on the first night of the trials. Yeah, so what happened is... As NBC's live broadcast is zooming in on your distant stars, like your Galen Rupp and Mm -hmm. your Ben True, in the background, there was this guy who's got this black hair down to his chest, was wearing a backward snapback ball cap, had these great sapia-tinted shades, and, of course, a glorious black mustache. Mm -hmm. 
and he kind of became a little sensation on Twitter. People were screenshotting the live cast and asking, basically, who is this guy? He's the most American athlete. Um, so I wanted to find out who he was. His name is Noah Drotti, and I met up with him naturally for a couple beers. He was drinking a PBR, of mm-hmm. course. Of course. Um, and he's got just an amazing story. Uh, about a year ago, he was just uh, a couple years out of a Division three college. He was a strong runner, nothing stellar. Mm-hmm. Didn't get noticed by any sponsors or any track clubs, but this um, in November, this track club out of Boulder took a chance on him. He moved from Indiana to Boulder, put in just a ridiculous amount of hard work, ended up qualifying for the Olympic marathon trials. And um, three weeks before the track trials, he ran a 10K in Portland um, at the Portland Track Festival, qualified um, and it's basically one of the last spots. It was like, oh. yeah, that was the last time he could really get in to the race. Exactly. And so he kind of, you know, he had trained really hard, but was so excited to do this. Um, flew in on a shoestring budget. I mean, paid for this with credit cards, slept on a cot in a motel with his teammates <laughs> the night before. He said he wanted to sleep in a tent outside, but his coach said no. Mm-hmm. Um, flew in his parents through a GoFundMe account. And um, during the race, he unfortunately had. A terrible race, um, ran 31 minutes, which is three minutes off of his PR. Um, so he, he was upset about that. And he's only 25, and I expect that we'll see pretty big things from him because he improved dramatically in just one year. Mm-hmm. But he said that he was on the big stage and that he really appreciated it. So one thing you got to know about him is he's a huge track nerd. So before the race, he was introducing himself to all these, like, guys he had looked up to for years like ben true he walked up during warm-ups and was like ben probably bad time but big fan kill it out there man was you know what he told, yeah. what he told ben yeah. true so in a way like he's this legit runner and he's he's bringing fun back to the sport is in a way what he's trying to do exactly and he knows he knows his, he plays off of his appearance and and thinks it's fun and yeah he he's even said after it, he's like you know, this is good for track. Like, mm-hmm. we all of us athletes have stories, so um, get to know us and become fans of us. And I know that after that 10K and, and the way he looked, he's got a lot of new fans. And he has to keep the mustache and hair now. Yeah, he's not allowed to shave. <laughs> right, right. All right, kids, so while you're out in Eugene, you know, the big thing in the running world was the track trials, but, you know, something else developed over the weekend that's taken the world by storm, and that's Pokemon Go. And it actually, it, it, there is some relation to running with it. Are you sure? Yeah, I I am sure. I took it out on a run today. Okay, so me focused solely on track for the past two weeks. I need a description. Knowing nothing about Pokemon. I don't know anything about Pokemon either, but we decided to check this out. Okay, so what is it? Pokemon Go, if you're unfamiliar, even though it has like a ton of downloads, it's an app for your iOS phone or Android phone. It's essentially a game where you go out in the world and you try to capture these Pokemon creatures. So it's kind of like the cards. You go out and you try to capture these things in the real world. So in a sense, if you're a fan, that's a really cool thing to like bring to life. So running, how, how does this have to do with running? So the thing is that you're out in the world, you're trying to capture these things, and you know as you go down the street, you could encounter one. Well, if you're moving faster, you can find more. So I found 11 on a run today the first time I tried it. <laughs> Which ones did you find? I have no idea. I know one was a bat, and uh, one was like a big elephant. <laughs> 
So, <laughs> but I caught eleven. Okay. So, but to my extent of Pokemon knowledge, did you catch any Pikachu's or Charizards? I did not. I don't think I caught. A, I do know what a Pikachu is, but I didn't catch any of those. And I should advise people that if you're going to run with this as like kind of a game, or like you could really do a fartlek workout with these things in between finding them. But you shouldn't run with the phone right up to your face because you will run into traffic if you're looking right at the avatar on your screen. So it vibrates when you're near something. So put the phone away, wait for the vibration, bring it back up, and then you know stop at a corner, interact with the thing, and catch all of your Pokemon creatures. All right, Brian. So I'm going to definitely go out and run with this thing and catch 12 Pokemon. I, I don't know. Um you know, I you still sound a little tired coming back from Eugene. I think you partied a little too hard at your Kiss concert on Friday night. I did go to a Kiss concert, first one. The the question is though, did you paint your face? Tell the <laughs> listeners if you painted your face. I did not paint my face because I went directly from the media tent to the <laughs> Kiss concert. Well, it's okay, Kit. At least you're now an official member of the Kiss Army. Oh yeah, rock on, Brian. Rock on. <laughs> Thanks for coming in, especially after your red eye flight. That's it for this week's show. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week's show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Mervyn Deganos, Christine Fennessy, and Brian Dalek, with help from Mano Blackman. The Runner's World Show is now part of the Panoply Network. And we know that lots of you are listening to the show for the first time. And please, if you don't mind, take a moment and leave us a rating and a review. We really want to continue to make the show better, and we care about what you think. Please join us next week when we catch up with executive editor Tish Hamilton as she, yes, walks her way to better running fitness. You don't want to miss it, so join us next week.